For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. Last Sunday, I began a three-week theme explaining the purpose and significance of the season of the church year which we have now entered. This season is called Septuagesima, often called Jesimatide, to distinguish the season itself from the first Sunday that is last Sunday, that the whole season is named after. So last Sunday was Septuagesima, today is Sexagesima, and next Sunday is Quinquagesima. Let me briefly explain and review what we learned last week so that we can transition into what our lessons this week teach us about the same theme. Septuagesima is a three-week season of preparation before the 40 days of preparation in Lent. Each Sunday represents 10 days in order to bring the number up from 40 to 70. And what's the point of this? As we heard last week, we answer why 70? Well, this 70 is symbolic of the 70 years of, uh, of time that the children of Judah spent in Babylon. And this was a time of great chastening for God's people because they loved worldly honor and pleasure more than listening to God's word. God gave them up to the world and removed them far away from where the gospel was publicly preached in Zion. Their punishment very fittingly matched their disobedience. Being deprived of God's word is the worst punishment for the worst sin of ignoring God's word. The Old Testament history is our history. We should learn it if we do not know it. God doesn't tell us stories or relate history without the clear purpose of teaching us what is prepared for us in heaven and without the very clear desire of guiding us there and producing wonderful fruits along the way. While he guides us, he lays crosses on us. He trains us and chastens us. We follow him who bore his cross by taking up our own crosses, as our Lord tells us to do. So if reading and learning scripture is hard, let it be hard. What has your flesh profited? Don't be surprised if your flesh resists instruction. Your flesh is sinful and always resists learning God's word. But learn it anyway for joy of what God Almighty aims to teach you and accomplish in you. Even if you think you're too old or simple to learn very much, and you might well be, yet it will humble you, won't it? And that is a beautiful thing. When we read and hear about the laziness and disobedience and worldliness of our ancient fathers and mothers, God is teaching us about our own laziness. 
our own disobedience and our own worldliness. When we learn of God's mercy towards stubborn sinners who literally worshipped idols that they made and ignored the prophets who told them not to, but who then learned to repent. When we learn of God's mercy towards these, God is teaching us about the mercy he desires to show us as well. Even though we are also very stubborn, and even though our idols are just as inexcusable, it is in mercy toward us that God tells us to repent and often gives us physical reminders that this is obviously the only course of action for us to be humbled. The Babylonian captivity, this punishment, teaches us a lot about ourselves. This is the purpose of this current season of Septuagesma, to see how God's chastening hand teaches us how it is that God so gently guides us through a life of repentance and hope. So last Sunday was called Septuagesima, 70th. And after this, the whole three-week season is named, and this Sunday is called 60th, Sexagesima. Last week, our focus was on grace alone, the grace of God by which we are saved, a wonderful theme with which to begin any preparation of repentance. Remember how the workers in the vineyard were rewarded according to God's generosity and not according to their own merits. Well, this week, our focus is on the Word of God. So let's review last week's theme and see how it flows naturally into and depends upon this Sunday's theme, especially in light of the Babylonian captivity. We are saved by God's grace apart from any of our own works. When the children of Judah were taken to Babylon against their will, this was their only consolation. But the God who severely disciplined them was the God who would save them by pure grace. In their affliction, they learned to know with St. Paul that God's grace was sufficient in their sorrow and that his strength was made perfect in their weakness. When we begin a season of penitence and personal self-discipline and denial, therefore, it is very fitting to keep this in mind. What child can endure his father's stern rebuke and scolding if he does not have the firm hope and expectation that his father will cool off and soon again reveal his love? Now such a child will rebel if his father never relents, won't he? And God who tells us fathers not to spare the rod, he who tells us not to spare the rod also tells us not to provoke our children to wrath. As we will sing right after this sermon, Whate'er the rod, thou art my God, naught can resist thy pleasure. Our sons and daughters need to know that we love them, even when we are scolding them and forcing them to do what they don't want to do, even if that means forcing them to come to church by dragging them out of bed and threatening not to feed them if they don't come. Or is that unfatherly? Whose fatherhood do we learn about this morning? It is merciful. For the flesh profits nothing. And so we discipline our flesh, don't we? 
Discipline is, is, is very unbearable if we distrust or hate the one who is disciplining us. That's why we must begin with grace. In order to begin with grace, we must turn our hearts to hear the word. As we began this morning from the prophet Isaiah chapter 54, right before the words we have recorded in our Old Testament lesson about the rain and the snow coming down and being like his word. This is the chapter right before that. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Isn't that beautiful? So says the Lord to us. With these words from God, the prophet Isaiah consoled those who were about to be driven and dragged as captives into Babylon. See how he encourages them to endure God's chastisement with patience and hope in his mercy. It is so beautiful. God is a gracious father, even when he is mad. And all of this illustrates that we must know that we have a gracious God before we dare open our hearts to him in sorrowful repentance, before we dare acknowledge that we deserve whatever our afflictions may be, because God hates our sin. Our sins make him very, very angry. But wouldn't we rather deny our sin than confess them to one who stays angry, who has no love for us, who has no merciful answer to us when he looks at our sin, who shows no intent to forgive us? Would any man begin a fast if he thinks his food will be gone tomorrow? No. Will he not stuff himself while he can? Yes. Likewise, we must know that there is a feast at the end of our fast, or we will lose heart and never deny ourselves anything. Instead, we'll glut ourselves and indulge in worldly delights. If ever we suppose that there is nothing good to expect after this short life is ended, Lord, have mercy. By beginning with such a wonderful and powerful theme as we did last week, grace alone, we prepare ourselves to endure. We prepare ourselves to repent, to come to terms with how ignorant we are, how much we have wasted our minds and remained and wallowed in ignorance. We prepare ourselves to fast and to focus without any terror but with confidence in the mercy of God, to focus on our many sins without losing heart, the many dangers we face without seeking counsel anywhere else but God, and the great need we have for God to help us. And to do this all, knowing above all things that God is gracious to us apart from any merit or worthiness in us, all solely through the merit of Christ our Savior. I just want to keep repeating the same theme. It's so wonderful. And this is what sustained the children of Judah who were carried away as captives in Babylon for 70 years. And if I won't repeat it again right now, over and over, yet you must live the rest of your lives, at least the next 70 years, hearing it repeated, because you need it. It is what will sustain us until Easter, through this penitential season, and obviously, too, therefore, until the end of life. And most certainly, when Christ's kingdom comes. Imagine for a moment the sorrow and grief of those carried away from the crumbled temple in Jerusalem and from their beloved homeland. Just imagine. Put yourself in their, in their place. 
As we heard last week, when their cruel captors taunted them and asked them for a song of Zion, they cried, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And for this reason, we lay aside our alleluias until, until Easter. We hang our hearts, so to speak, on the boughs along the rivers of Babylon. Imagine also, though, what hope these captive exiles had to entertain in the years as they passed by. And where did they exercise their hope and strengthen their hope when they were taken away from where the gospel was publicly preached? We see how today's theme is so excellently chosen for us. These Septuagesima themes were chosen some 1,500 years ago. Think of that. And today we consider the power and promise of God's word. Consider these words, which the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet, whose word the people of Judah had ignored and sneered at while he warned them. And yet, even to these who were being carried off just as they fully deserved, listen to what the Lord commanded Jeremiah to say to them as they were being dragged away kicking for their own hard hearts from the only home they knew. For thus says the Lord, wrote Jeremiah, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I myself have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you now to be carried away captive. God is truly abounding in mercy. Talk about loving us even when he's mad. He promises mercy even when he's punishing. He who drives them away cannot bear in his heart to see them go without assuring them before they're out of sight that he will rescue them soon. Seventy years, he says. It's like a naughty child running up the stairs to her bedroom where you sent her and you, and you calling out assuring her because your heart aches that she can come out in a little bit once she calms down, once she reflects, once she learns how to say sorry and not to talk back to her mother. The psalm I just quoted from, How Can We Sing the Lord's Song in a Foreign Land? This is Psalm 137, which ends with among the most alarming complaints in all the psalms, wishing terrible things on the Babylonians. Psalm 137, you can go read it yourself sometime. To put it mildly, what I don't even want to quote in a sermon, the children of Judah slammed the door to the bedroom they were sent to. And so we behave like little brats, complaining, whining, not wanting to participate in the happy theme of our soul's salvation because we're too busy feeling sorry for ourselves whenever God chastens us. When God exposes our naughtiness, we find somebody else to blame. 
when he exposes our pride, our laziness, our worldliness, our sin, our sin against him who gives us everything we have. We resent his discipline because it hurts. We imagine that he doesn't have the right to take away what he once gave because we've grown used to our standard of living. But we take what he sends us. We take it. We take from our Lord what feels like the very opposite of grace alone. We take it from him as from a father who loves us dearly because we have his word and we have not left Zion without it. We come here to get it and to depart every single Sunday and every time we darken these doors to depart with peace, won for us by Christ our Savior. We have his word of mercy even while the law and commandments still sting our hearts and wound our pride. We have his word of mercy to return to once the guilt of our sins sinks in and we begin like children sent to their rooms to consider that our Father in heaven has always had the right to warn us and he was even more right to afflict us. We learn to consider his discipline in light of his promises so that every burden becomes a cross. And if it is a cross, then it is blessed. On Jesus' cross, he took away all our sins and made peace between us and God. On his cross, he removed all God's wrath and judgment by bearing it in patience. And see what fruit he bore. See him win salvation for us and for all people. See him do this for those who did not deserve it. And seeing it, we reflect upon it. We listen to the good news about it. And here we receive the fruit of his labor and the forgiveness of our sins where he gives us his own body and blood to eat and to drink, to assure us that he is not angry at us, but loves us and forgives us. We let God correct us. We hear it. We own our sins and learn to repent in a better song than our first arises when we first slam the door. Consider this wonderful psalm, not 137, but Psalm 126, that God's disciplined and sad children also left with. It is a psalm of prophecy that speaks in the past tense and echoes the promises we just heard from Isaiah and Jeremiah. They speak as though it has already come to happen because that is how firm their hope is. It is what we just sang. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. From this, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we see the beautiful connection between the sure theme of last Sunday and the sure theme of this Sunday. We learn to rely on grace alone only by patiently listening to God's word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.
He who has sins that burden his conscience, let him confess them. He who desires peace with God, let him find it here. For the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And what is the goal? What is the goal of all this affliction, the goal of our, our faith? A sower goes out to sow a seed. He's sad. He sees the seed doing nothing. He sees hopelessness as it lands on the road. He sees the birds eat what, we, what he just sowed, like, like we see the word rejected by those we hoped to persuade, and it breaks our hearts. That's why the sower is sad. The sower sees his seed land on the rock. It's hopeless. He knew it would happen. But he still entertained hope when he saw it first grow, when people act interested or even excited in the gospel, but then they don't really root themselves. They don't commit to hearing God's word. They come to church once or twice, and then they stop because they feel persecution. They feel temptation in themselves, and they think that something else is more pressing. And things get tough. The first thing they drop is hearing God's word, and it's heartbreaking because we know that the the preaching of God's word is precisely for tough times. A plant without roots is dead while it grows, just like a Christian who doesn't flee to the gospel in temptation and trial. The sower also sees his fall, seed fall where he knows it'll grow, but he sees other things growing too. We see Christians fall into cares and worries and riches and pleasures of this world. And I think this is especially where we see it in ourselves, isn't it? And you see the condemnation of this is that they did not bear fruit to maturity. And you lack fruit. And you want more fruit. Isn't that the goal? You want to live more obediently to God? Because your disobedience is the problem, right? You want to have that joy in your heart that the Holy Spirit promises, right? You want to overcome temptation. You find weakness. There's a thorn in your flesh. You want to delight in the mysteries of God and hold on to a good conscience. But you sin. You want God to remove your weakness and take it away from you. All that hinders you from the good Christian life that you desire to live. But then instead of taking it away from you, instead of showing you the great mysteries of God more clearly by bringing you up to the highest heaven, he drives you deeper into the ground and tells you that his grace is sufficient for you. And he may never remove that temptation until your flesh dies. But even now, long before you are brought to the heavenly courts of heaven where you will praise God forever, who saved you by his blood, you are brought back to Zion, whose rivers make glad the city of God. You are brought back to Zion through your baptism that washed your sin away and gave you a new birth in heaven. You are brought back to Zion where the Lord, who fulfills all his promises, speaks his word to you. He teaches you to bear fruit that depend on his fruit. He teaches you to bear fruit that sings the glory of his mercy and to believe it. As we sing in that wonderful hymn, faith clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in him unceasing. And by its fruit, true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify. Works serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. To confess this is the fruit we desire. To know it and believe it. It is the fruit that comes from faith in God's forgiveness and favor in Christ. And his grace is sufficient. 
It is God who desires fruit. We must learn always to desire grace and mercy. He will cause to grow what he wants. But his goal is our salvation. So we cling to it by abiding in his word and firmly holding on to it, knowing that he who accomplished peace in our hearts is also able to accomplish whatever it is he may produce in us. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto everlasting life. Amen. After the offertory, please uh, sit back down and we'll sing our hymn of the day. Thank you.